0: Turning up the temperature, how is that going to change everything, It's difficult to predict specifically, but not generally, because we know that these complex biological adaptive systems are not linear, which means that we have tipping points.
1: That was scientist Francis Fiza, our guest for this podcast episode. Welcome to The Future Ocean. What Can Carbon Policy Do for the Oceans and Our Fisheries? This is a podcast for Coastal Alaskans. Why are we talking about the future ocean and carbon policy? Well, we have a problem. The ocean is becoming more acidic and the water is warming up. Both phenomena have the same root cause. That is the building up of carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere from the combustion of fossil fuels for energy. We've faced big challenges before, and by applying the tremendous might of human ingenuity, we can navigate this one too. But it calls for all hands on deck. In this podcast series, we are first exploring what is happening to the ocean ecosystem and our fisheries. Then we will talk about putting a price on carbon emissions as a tool to accelerate the emerging transition to renewable energy. The Future Ocean Podcast is an informational discussion sponsored by the Alaska Ocean Acidification Network. I'm your host, Maggie Wall. In the first episode, we discussed ocean acidification. This is episode two, and we will continue with some science background about the changes happening in the ocean. We will hear from scientist Francis Visa in Anchorage. He's the technical leader for marine science at Stantec, a global design, engineering, and environmental consulting firm. Francis Visa also serves on the Interagency Arctic Research Policy Committee, among other scientific organizations, to foster coordinated research in the North Pacific and Arctic Ocean. As carbon is building up in the atmosphere, the ocean is absorbing much more heat than it used to. Francis Fiese is going to talk to us about how this warming is transforming Alaska's oceans before our very eyes. And he'll relay advice issued by the scientific community to dramatically reduce carbon emissions, starting now, to prevent the most significant consequences of climate change, and from which, they warn, there may be no coming back.
0: A couple of things have been going on in recent years. And that mostly has been expressed by record warm years in the ocean driven by climate change in different ways. We've seen that in the Gulf of uh, Alaska, we've seen in the Bering Sea, and we've certainly seen it in the Arctic Ocean. The way that that translates into the marine ecosystem really sort of differs uh, in a couple of ways, depending on geography and sort of what the main drivers are of that, that system both physically as well as biologically. So in, in the Bering Sea and in the Arctic, that warming um, is mostly expressed by changes in sea ice conditions. And so the sea ice in the Bering Sea is seasonal and it's com- it comes down uh, from the Chukchi Sea and migrates south uh, into the Bering Sea to different extent depending on the temperatures uh, in the fall and then uh, stays there for the winter historically and then in the spring goes back goes back north and what we're seeing in these recent sort of record warm years uh is that that dynamic is changing is changing quite a bit on a large scale it it means that it stays warmer for longer in the fall in the summer and fall and that makes the ice formation to be later uh in the year and then uh, and then in the spring, it gets warmer earlier, and, and that means that the ice breaks up earlier and moving into sort of spring-summer transition earlier in the year. And, to, and, and the changes are more marked, certainly in the fall, like the, it's getting later and later in the fall. But together, it means that the sea ice season, um, both in the Bering Sea as well as in the Chukchi Sea in particular, have gotten a lot shorter. Now we still have ice there in the winter um, at some point because it still gets cold and dark. At some, you know, the sun goes below the horizon, so we still have a winter. But the fact that the sea ice sort of timing has changed matters quite a lot.
1: Sea ice plays such a dynamic role in the ecosystem. Francis Visa explains further about the Bering Sea.
0: In the Bering Sea, it matters because uh, sea ice is habitat for a lot of species, but also when the sea ice, uh, d- depending on how far it extends to the south, when it leaves, there's a lot of uh, fresh water and cold water that gets in and, and that le- leaves a footprint um, at the bottom of the ocean on the Bering Sea shelf. And this is in the location where a lot of the fisheries are occurring. And this is what we call the cold pool and this cold pool which is basically this footprint of where the ice was during the winter is really important because it's a a habitat for some species that like colder water Um, it's a barrier for some others that prefer warmer water Um, and the temperature also drives other things in the in the marine food web in the bering sea and in the northern bering sea in particular not having this cold pool, or not as an extensive cold pool, does a few things. One is it, it's no longer this temperature barrier that existed before, which means that some species can go much further north than they were before, where they would come up against this temperature wall, if you like, um, that was too cold for them, and then be like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm stay out of that. I stay where my temperature optimum is. Um, And so it has shifted distribution of species. They can now, many of them are further north where before there was a barrier. And that of course has implications to, you know, fisheries and other things.
1: So let's go to the Gulf of Alaska. What is happening there?
0: The question of a warming Gulf of Alaska and its implication is similar to what we talked about in the Bering Sea uh, in the sense of where the energy is going. So we had heat waves a few years ago. It was called the blob in the in the Gulf of Alaska that was sort of making its way north uh, from British Columbia um, towards the northern Gulf of Alaska. And then we thought we and, and that created lots of changes. Actually, we saw in terms of plankton and and other sort of invertebrates and jellyfish and other things that were much more abundant during those warmer years. Um, and that changed sort of other fish species and things that uh, did well in those years. Uh, and then we thought we had lost that heat wave or had gone away and then it came back again. And it turns out it's just gone deeper where we, where we couldn't detect it as easily. And it's come back up to the surface. Um, and it looks like some of those changes have continued or have been accentuated.
1: The heat wave finally took its toll when the Gulf of Alaska cod fishery was closed for 2020. Francis Visa explains.
0: And part of that is, has led to a, a failure in the cod fishery, um, in part because of the smaller zooplankton I talked about before. So basically, the warming is changing the food or the type of food and the quality of food that's available for the fish. And, and that has an impact on how well the fish themselves do, how well they can survive uh, in the winter when there's less food. So it's basically, you know, you have to go to the store because in the winter you can't go shopping, let's say. You'll have to go to the store make sure you have enough food So you, until the shop opens again in the spring. While if there's not no good food, no high energy density food or not enough of it that you can go buy, the chances of surviving through the winter until that store opens up again is smaller. And that's exactly what happens to these fish, right? There's not enough energy that they can pack on to their bodies to ensure their winter survival, or at least not as much. And that means that there's less recruitment in the following year because fewer of them survive. And that means there's fewer fish to fish um, and that population goes down. And uh, and that has led to the caught fishery failure uh, to a large extent.
1: Well, the decline in Gulf of Alaska cod was hard on a lot of people. Since 2020, the heat wave dissipated and some recovery allowed the fishery to reopen. But many are wondering what to expect in the future. Francis Visa reflects on the climate forecast.
0: Will those heat waves go away? You know, is the ocean going to revert back to sort of a longer term average water temperature, which is colder than what we usually, that we have seen in the last couple of years. Um, And is that true? And it's, you know, it's hard to say exactly, but the expectation is that the heat waves will continue. um, That even if the current one goes away, that there will be more of them. Uh, We'll see more of them in the future that may last for longer than the ones in the past, because we're still in this overall warming trend.
1: Warnings from climate scientists everywhere are indeed serious. Internationally, the leading organization on climate change science, the International Panel on Climate Change, has issued what they call a Code Red for Humanity. This is a call for steep and urgent reduction in carbon emissions required to avoid the most severe and irreversible impacts of a warming climate. The scientific consensus is that we need to prevent the Earth from warming up more than 1.5 degrees centigrade compared to pre-industrial times. Let's hear more from Francis Visa.
0: The International Panel on Climate Change, which in short, we just say IPCC because it's easier. is like a group of scientists around the world, top in their field, that get together and write these assessments. And there's been several of them. The sixth assessment is coming out, hopefully, the end of the year. And where they try to evaluate sort of what have been the changes that we've seen in the climate across all the different parts of a biosphere. So on land and in water and in freshwater and at altitude, et cetera, et cetera, and the ocean. Um, and then run a series of climate models and they call it climate ensembles because it's a whole bunch of different ones. Uh, there's like a dozen or so that are run. They're all slightly different and they run together. Their outputs are put together to give us, okay, well, what's the you know minimum and maximum across all these models? What are they telling us what the future is going to look like? And it's built around different models. Um, projections that are called representative concentration pathways for carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases. And basically what that does it says right now there's an X amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, it's trapping heat in our atmosphere and they stay around for X amount of time and the concentration may go up or down depending on what we as a society decide to do in terms of burning fossil fuels, etc. So the climate models take that into account. They run a couple of different scenarios that look towards different ways of decisions that society globally makes about carbon emissions and and greenhouse gas emissions.
1: These climate models analyze how the climate will fare under a range of emission scenarios. Francis Visa describes further.
0: And then say, okay, well, if we do a very aggressive, say, climate agenda in terms of cutting fossil fuel Uh, burning soon and quickly, then our projection is going to be like that. And then, you know, the greenhouse gas is going to go down, warming is is smaller than it would be otherwise. If, however, we don't do anything, we keep on living the way we do, we keep on burning all these fossil fuels and doing all the things we do, then the projection is not so great in terms of temperature and our temperature increases are going to be much larger. And, And then it talks about not only temperature, but what what the flow down of increases of temperature are to the rest of our biosphere. So they bring the latest science and the latest models together and and really the IPCC assessments become sort of the global authoritative voice of the latest trends, the latest impacts and the relationships and projections of what the climate is doing and is going to do for the next 100 years or so.
1: Having the technical knowledge about the changing climate is one thing. But what happens to these reports?
0: And that's really important because not only does it provide all this information um, to people who want to use it for making policies or for uh, infrastructure codes or buildings or building resiliency for people and communities, etc. It's just a general call for awareness and a call for action. So if you think about it, we are are, have already passed the one degree Celsius uh, warming in in this scale, so we want to not warm it more than another half a degree. Um, And in order to do that, the IPCC has made recommendation of what we need to do in terms of global emissions, recognizing that the main driver of these temperature increases in our atmosphere are greenhouse gas emissions. That are put there by burning fossil fuels. So they say we need to cut global emissions by 45% by 2030. So that's nine years from now, and then really need to reach sort of a net zero emissions by 2050. And when they I mean net zero, it means like you you know it's not that like you're not going to have any emissions, but there needs to be some mechanisms that are compensating for those emissions in terms of pulling greenhouse gases back out of the atmosphere so that the balance is zero. Basically, we're not making it any worse.
1: Scientists are able to measure the carbon content of the different greenhouse gases. Carbon dioxide, which lasts 100 years, makes up 80%. But there are other gases that last thousands of years. We asked Francis Visa what the IPCC says about the emissions that are already in the atmosphere.
0: So if we stop the emissions today, there's still a lot of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere um, that are going to keep on warming. And that's going to happen no matter what we do. And we want to make sure that that curve, when that starts decreasing, it decreases as quickly as possible. And we need to help that out because we've been asleep for too many decades. So we need to do this quickly. And one way to accelerate the reduction of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is to what we what we call carbon sequestration, which just means that you're pulling carbon the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and sticking it somewhere where it's not going to come out. So what the IPCC is projecting in terms of warming and the one and a half degree Celsius limit that they're suggesting ha- has repercussions for our entire biosphere, whether or not we're going to make them or not.
1: So let's get back to Alaska and considerations for our fisheries if we don't reduce emissions fast enough. NOAA fishery scientists report that our fisheries may reach a tipping point or rapid decline if climate change continues on its current trajectory and fish are not able to adapt to changing conditions. Francis Visa paints this picture for us.
0: And for the Alaska marine ecosystems, and our fisheries in particular, there's several things to consider. One is that the ocean is a complicated four dimensional system, very integrated and interrelated. And so when you tweak one thing like the temperature up to us, you know, by half a degree or one degree, it's very difficult to say exactly what's going to happen. Um, but we know that those that relationships between temperature and certain processes, like what type of species can do well in certain temperatures. For example, what type of food might be around, how biological habitats may change. We understand some of those, say, um, temperature optima that species have evolved towards and do well during certain conditions versus others. So we have a sense of what that is. But once you combine that all and say, well, okay, I'm I'm turning up the temperature. How is that going to change everything? It's difficult to predict specifically, but not generally, because we know that these complex biological adaptive systems are not linear, which means that we have tipping points. They're called thresholds. At some point, they bring sort of big surprises, means that, you know, it's kind of like turning up your oven. And you, you can see it go up and it goes up by, you know, five degrees every minute or so when you're heating it up. And then I imagine suddenly after after a certain point, it goes up exponentially. So these sort of very quick, more dramatic responses is what we're sort of afraid of that might happen um, if warming goes past that 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold.
1: Francis Fieson noted that, for example, the sea ice regime will change completely, that the summer sea ice will be completely gone in the Arctic, that the winter sea ice will be much thinner and much more shorter lived than it was before.
0: And that has all the repercussions we already talked about, what that means for which species are going to do well and which species are not going to do well. So we would see changes in pollock and cod abundance, for example, because it's just going to get too warm for them. Uh, And then other species may do better. Other species that may come from the south um, may come into the Gulf of Alaska and into the Bering Sea. But that means that the fishery may need to change. And is that possible? Can people adapt to those changes?
1: As fisheries scientists continually implore, it's critical to have frequent research surveys to understand how to manage fisheries in the changing future. Francis Visa concludes.
0: You know what, because this, this type and rates of changes that we've been observing in the last decade are really unprecedented and have led to a new report by the IPCC that came out, I think last year or maybe a year and a half ago now, that really showed that the changes are mass, much faster than predicted. So, so that means that the past is no longer a good predictor of the future. And that means we need up-to-date data as much as possible, collect information all the time and then update of what we think is going to happen and change um, the way we manage um, our fishery species accordingly. We think about these systems, and I talked about the ocean, but we talked about fishery, and you really think about these system as systems as social-ecological systems. Right, we we get away from thinking that you know people are doing this and the environment is doing that and the economy is doing this other thing. It is really a one big interconnected system, and and we can see these when big things happen, right? Like climate change or the the COVID nineteen pandemic, where suddenly we realize how interconnected everything is. That we really need to think about this as a system rather than individual pieces that we can somehow somehow manage.
1: That was scientist Francis Visa. Next up, tiny tidbits about big things with Cheryl Nugent.
2: Greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide, are ones that create a blanket round the Earth, preventing all the sun's heat from escaping back to space. But greenhouse gases are not all bad. In fact, the natural greenhouse effect makes life as we know it possible. We wouldn't be here without it, because the Earth would just be too cold. However, the problem is that, since the Industrial Revolution began, a time period that represents just a tiny blip ago in the Earth's history Greenhouse gases have shot up by 30%, mainly as a result of the burning of fossil fuels. Now the Earth's average temperature is getting too warm. Today, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are the highest they've been in 15 million years. In addition to sharply reducing future carbon emissions and removing existing carbon from the atmosphere, what else do we need to do? One key thing is called nature-based solutions. That is, letting Mother Nature just do her job. Certain habitats take up carbon dioxide during photosynthesis and then store that carbon in the soils and sediments below. For coastal habitats, think wetlands and salt marshes. Think tropical mangroves and old-growth forests. They hold a lot more carbon than newly planted trees, like the Tongass coastal rainforest in southeast Alaska. Our job is to safeguard these habitats so that they can continue storing carbon, keeping it out of the atmosphere.
1: Well, that's a lot to think about, and really only the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Thanks to Francis Visa for explaining what's happening to the ocean and how scientists are measuring and modeling changes to the Earth's climate. In coming episodes, we'll look at policies that put a price on carbon emissions. Carbon pricing, as it's called in policy circles, is a tool using market forces in the economy to accelerate the clean energy transition. We'll talk with experts in the field about how that could work. Preventing overall global warming from exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius is what the U.S. and other nations are trying to achieve through the Paris Climate Agreement. That agreement was signed in 2015 by 196 countries. This is where the U.S. and the community of nations have committed to the biggest joint venture in world history. For more information about these topics that we've been discussing, please visit thefutureoceanpodcast.com. You can also find all six episodes there, or you can listen by subscribing to The Future Ocean on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. In the meantime, don't get down in the doldrums. Here are some practical things that you can do to be part of the solution. If you live on the rail belt, that is between Homer and Fairbanks, find out how you can cost-effectively add solar panels to your home or business, and even sell extra power back to the utility. More than 1,600 customers are doing just that. For our fishermen listeners... Find out what's going on with engine efficiency, as well as low or zero-carbon marine fuels. Over 120 shipping companies are working to have commercially viable zero-emission vessels operating along deep-sea trade routes by 2030. Others in the commercial fisheries are pursuing the feasibility of diesel-electric, hybrid, battery-electric, and alternative fuels. Where there's a will, there's usually a way. The Future Ocean Podcast is sponsored by the Alaska Ocean Acidification Network and is produced in Kodiak, Alaska, where electricity is generated nearly 100% by renewable energy. Music for this episode is by Chris Ann Sweeney. I'm your host, Maggie Wall.